When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I don't agree with all this story about climate change at all. I believe that God above is in charge of, of, the, of the weather and that we here can't do anything about it. Danny Healy Ray was right, at least about one thing. If we go back to the 11th and the 12th centuries, the, this country was uh, roasted out of it. The world has been warmer. The scientists tell us that the petrol diesel and coal are heating up the planet and causing floods and forest fires and landslides and drought. But Danny Healy Ray is speaking for a lot of people when he says we've been here before. And in the 13th, uh, the 15th and the 16th centuries, we were drowned out of it. It's true, the climate's always changing. We have the medieval warm period a thousand years ago, followed by the Little Ice Age, uh, we understand that these were controlled by changes in solar output and volcanic activity. This is Jason Box, an ice scientist talking on the Greenland ice sheet. And then about 1750 and onward, the Industrial Revolution produces the burning of coal and then clearing of land for agriculture at an industrial scale. So humans have become the dominant factor of change and that's probably not going to change unless there's some even stronger impact, you know, like a comet. That's the kind of scale of catastrophism that has to compete with human activity. The thing is that humans are the comet now. It's 88. Jason Box is just one of the people the documentary on one team met around the world who are looking at what climate change is doing on the ground. So 888 for this guy. The ice scientist on Greenland is a good person to start with. Because in our stories elsewhere in the world, climate change is often exacerbated by local human behaviour, like deforestation or building on floodplains. But on Greenland, there's hardly any human activity. The country is about four times the size of Spain and Portugal, and yet there are only 50,000 people living there. So, What's happening to the ice sheet there is happening because of the rest of us. The documentary on one producer, Liam O'Brien, decided to go to Greenland because of Jason Box and because of a music magazine. I was reading the Rolling Stone magazine, not a magazine you'd normally associate with climate change, and I came across an article on Professor Jason Box. I'm reading from it here now, the articles. It was titled The Cruelest Summer. Uh, with the headline, in just one week in July last year, the ice and snow virtually disappeared from the surface of Greenland's barren interior. Only a few months earlier, when Jason Box predicted this might happen, he was dismissed by many of his fellow scientists as an alarmist. And there's a quote from him in it. I don't want to look back and say I didn't do everything I could to help people understand the risks we all face. And in many ways, that's kind of what 
piqued my interest in Professor Jason Box and in the ice cap in Greenland. Because what he was talking about there is what's been referred to in climate change terms as the Great Melt of 2012. It's since transpired that that wasn't a one-off. And also that what's happening in Greenland, what's happening in the ice cap in Greenland, is having an impact here in Ireland. ESB networks are continuing to restore power to thousands of homes and businesses which have lost supply as a result of Storm Diana. The storm is tracking northwards. That the total harvest will be one of the lowest since 1994. I'm joined now by Michael Hennessy of Chagas. Michael, a poor autumn, a wet autumn and a very dry summer have combined to make it very difficult for cereal farmers. Yeah, it's been an extremely difficult year for farmers. There's no room for complacency this lunchtime storm. Emma continues to wreak havoc around the country. Power, roads, public transport, they're all still taking a hit and concerns about water supplies and flooding also coming to the fore. Greenland and its ice sheets seem like this faraway country, but actually Greenland's only about 2,000 miles away from Ireland. That's about the same distance from Ireland as the south of France, northern Italy. Um, But how most Irish people will know Greenland is for anyone who's travelled to the United States during the day in a plane and looks out the window, they will see this huge expanse of ice that goes on for miles and miles and miles underneath them. That's the Greenland ice sheet and it's the second biggest body of ice in the world. Antarctica is the biggest, then there's the Greenland ice sheet. Nassaswak is where we were flying into and it's one landing strip in the middle of nowhere you know you feel like you're kind of landing in tundra at the edge of the sea ladies and gentlemen welcome to Nassaswak and I would say it's probably the size of Waterford Airport more like a bus terminal really we're using this helicopter kind of like a delivery van. Jason and his colleagues fly up onto the ice sheet in a helicopter, which they load full of measuring equipment, most of which is bags of 10 foot long aluminium poles. We've uh, removed the front seat uh, to make room for these stake segments. We're all crammed in the back. And we're happy. The helicopter pilot on board, he has a rifle for polar bears. The polar bear can just come from the horizon, essentially, because he's white. It's very hard to decipher. So it's just about being prepared. You can be surprised at any minute.
The Greenland ice sheet is huge, about 700 miles across and 1,500 miles long, and it's shaped like a dome. As we look up this glacier, if we could keep looking and seeing, it just opens up and it just rises and rises up to up to more than two miles of, of thickness of, of this ice. It's the scale of everything up there that is the most frightening in many ways and the most visceral. You know, you're hit with this. You can't get your head around it. You've never been in a landscape like that before. I guess one way we could think of it is for any of us who've been in a ferry or in a boat and you go out to sea and you get to that point, you know, 17, 18 miles out from land and the land is gone and all you can see all around you is water. Well, that's exactly what it is on the Greenland ice sheet, only it's, it's ice and it goes on forever and ever. The thing that strikes me most, that I still remember the most, is the sound of everything melting. I just had never thought about that. I was never prepared for it. In that, if I hear water flowing here, it doesn't tell me anything other than water is flowing. But when I was there in that space, I hear water flowing, I'm thinking, this is the ice cap melting. My first trip to Greenland was in, in 2005, and I've been coming here every year since. Also up on the ice uh, with Jason Box is Robert Fausto, a Danish ice scientist. What changed during that period? A lot of things, mainly is that we see a lot of uh, ice is melting, but also places in Greenland, they, it gets greener. You see a lot of trees and uh, shrubberies, and of course that's something that was there before, but it's just more of it now. Each year has been more melting than the previous year. Of course, there is variability, but there is a clear trend. Climate warming seems to be producing more snowfall, but a lot more melt. And so the ice sheet, if you could make an analogy with a bank account, this account is in deficit. And if you were to melt away everything, that would be approximately seven meters of sea level rise to the global oceans. So that would mean that most major cities near coast in Europe would be flooded. You know, like Dublin, it's been there a thousand years, right? Well, what's the next thousand years look like for a place like that faced with several meters of sea level rise? to afford to mitigate sea level rise by building seawalls and, and so on. I mean, that's expensive engineering there. Last December, the Office of Public Works published details of a 140 million euro flood relief plan for Cork. The project aims to protect more than 2,000 homes and businesses from flooding by creating washlands for floodwaters upstream and by constructing walls and embankments along the river's edge in the city centre. If you want to get a sense of what it's like to live in an area prone to flooding, you have to come here. This is northern Bangladesh, 
and an island in the middle of the mighty Brahmaputra River, which is fed by meltwater from the Himalayas. Ronan Kelly was there for another documentary on one production. So the island is about 600 acres. It's in the middle of a river that's about 10 kilometres wide. And it's very unsettling when you first get off the boat because when you first get off the boat, you notice that the island, parts of the island, are collapsing into the river. The island is made of sand. It's fertile alluvial soil and sand. And the edges of the island look just like a sandcastle that you would make on the beach here. And when the tide comes in, it starts breaking it down. So the island is constantly being eroded and deposited. So a farmer might have a field on one side of the island, it could be washed away one day, and another field might reappear on the other side of the island. Traditionally, they would have about four floods a year, each of the floods lasting about 15 days. So it is change of weather. He doesn't know the term climate change, but he said, like, change of weather. Earlier, they can predict when the flood will come, but now there's no time of flood. As he said, like, this is actually the time for a flood, but there's no water. I was visiting the island with Oxfam, who have done work with the islanders in order to help them adapt to climate change. And when you go around the island, you can see various physical changes that have been made in order to make life more secure for islanders during floods. So, for example, there are more hand pumps attached to the wells, which means that the well water is isolated from the floodwaters and can't be contaminated. In the school here, the toilets are raised up on plinths so that the floodwaters don't flow into the toilets and then carry out contaminated sewage that can spread disease in the area. The most spectacular engineering work that's been done in order to protect the people during the floods is that some of their houses have been raised up on mounds. So this woman, Zumila, her house is raised up. What does she say how high it is? Seven and a half feet. And I was curious, what's it like to live in a house that floods four times a year. Life was very difficult, very tough, because uh, she had to... Uh, she just stayed on bed or, and on just raised platforms. And then the boat would come by her house, and then she would get on the boat, and then she'd go to the marketplace, buy stuff, and come back to her bed. Wow, that's terrible. And because of climate change, when there's cold weather on the river, there's more fog, which means the crops on the island don't grow as well. So Oxfam are helping the islanders come up with various other ways of making money, like growing and sorting chilies, keeping ducks. And they've helped them set up a small factory for the women to make children's clothes. And while all of the economic and engineering changes made on the island to adapt to climate change are interesting, for me the most fascinating thing was to do with social science. And that was when we arrived on the island, a group of local women brought us into a hall, a community hall, no windows, no doors, and up around the walls of the hall they stuck up brown paper sheets And these were 
like flip charts or PowerPoint presentations in a very, very basic way, but the information on them wasn't basic. So this is basically a detailed statistical analysis of the population, how many houses are here, about crops, and how many latrines, and how many elder people and physically and mentally handicapped populations. What the women had done is they'd gone around the island and they'd surveyed everybody on the island, asked them about their vulnerabilities, asked them about the history of flooding on the island, asked them about their responses to climate change, and they had brought all this information together, put it in the forms of charts and diagrams and text, and put them on these sheets. And the women on the island, these poor villagers, were essentially social scientists, and the information they had gathered, they were using to plan their response to climate change. These Bangladeshi villagers were using surveys conducted on the ground to more accurately monitor what was happening, gathering data. Back up on the Greenland ice sheet, Jason Box and his colleagues are doing the same thing, gathering data. Well, but it's 553 to here. And the gathering of data is just so essential to the discussion on climate change. Like this week, the world has just learned that the ice sheet in Antarctica, which is the biggest ice sheet in the world, that's starting to melt at a rate that it just hasn't done before. Where this summer, the Greenland ice sheet was very stable. So climate deniers, for instance, can say, oh, this year was great in the Greenland ice sheet. There was no net increase in melt. And yet, on the other hand, Antarctica is now starting to melt. So the point is that we need to look at data over prolonged periods of times to see overall patterns in climate change and in ice melt. And one of the things that's most interesting about Jason and Robert is that they're amongst only a tiny handful of people in global terms that actually get to walk on the Greenland ice sheet each year. And so the data that they're collecting, it's weighted upon, I mean, with bated breath throughout the scientific community all over the world each year. They're monitoring the ice melt by placing instruments around the surface of the ice sheet. You just want the count of pipes, huh? Is that it? Some of these are quite sophisticated, but some of their measuring is very basic, hence the 10-foot aluminium poles. They drill down into the ice, like 40 metres, something like that. The documentary on one producer, Liam O'Brien. Then they'd connect all these aluminium poles together, If you imagine the pole is a four-inch aluminium pole and they come in 10-foot lengths, say, and you clock them in together and you drop them slowly, slowly, slowly down. You drill 95-foot hole into the ice and you drop your 100-foot pole into it. So you're five foot sticking out and you have a flag at the top of it. And you measure how much of the pole is sticking out from above the ice from above the level of the ice sheet and you make a mark in it and you take it in your notes and then the following year you return and you find how much of the pole is now sticking up in the ice. Uh, The poles you've dropped down into the, the ground. What do you expect to find when you come back to this location next year? So we drilled in these pipes all the way down and... Next year, when we come back from at this location, these same pipes are going to be kind of towering above the surface. 
because they're anchored at depth in the ice and, and the surface ice just melts downward. And uh, so at our next site, we expect uh, the same in pipes and so on that you see just down at knee height here. They're going to be house height because at the next site, we get about six meters or more of uh, melting each year. So these pipes, they end up kind of swaying up in the, the, the breeze. You want to get your leg on, yeah. So we were loading up the helicopter and we had all the poles that needed to be dug back up out of the ground and the drills and stuff to put back in and all that. And all the thing that goes with that, because obviously they've all the measuring tools that they put there, like temperature gauges and wind measurement tools and all that stuff. And anyway, the pilot let a roar out, and I just see Jason starting to leg it. So I start, obviously, following. That sucks. We, we had to bug out. We were just on, on the ground for 10 minutes, but the, the clouds closed down. We have uh, surface-based clouds around us. It's closing in our direction of exit. So we had to pull the plug on this uh, site. It's disappointing. Because the ice cap is in the shape of a dome, there's nothing to stop cloud, there's nothing to dissipate it. So the minute you see it, you have, they say, roughly one to two minutes to stay ahead of it because nothing will stop the wind, so the wind blows in. And if you get, if you're in the chopper and you're on the ground like that and the cloud comes in, that's it, you're locked in. Like legally and, and for safety reasons, you can only fly a chopper over the ice cap if you have a minimum of 200 meters visibility. weather is a recurring theme in the story of climate change. Migrants from Central America rest before moving further north towards the United States. However, their hopes of... The pictures of poor migrants are often the pictures of climate refugees. These illegal caravans will not be allowed into the United States and they should turn back now. The migrant caravan of the summer of 2018 that threaded its way up through Central America and Mexico to the US border included many from the so-called dry corridor countries in Central America, which have suffered drought in the past 10 years. Images that they witnessed yesterday of parents losing their children to the waters of the Mediterranean. Uh, tonight, indeed, uh, a number of coffins... And those refugees, clustering in Libya in the hopes of getting to Europe, are often escaping drought elsewhere in Africa. When Emer Horgan was in Africa for the documentary on one, she came across a climate change scientist who was seeking out those people most at risk from climate crisis. The kinds of people who might end up on boats in the Mediterranean because of climate change. Uh, Emer met Megan Daly, a researcher who speaks Swahili and who is interviewing herding families in northern Tanzania. And she was doing work with some of the Maasai people there. 
And she was particularly interested in what was happening to them as a result of climate change and what was happening to their herding patterns and to their way of life. In the Swahili language, there isn't a word for climate. So they don't talk about climate change. They talk about changes in the weather. Everybody, almost everybody I've spoken with has noticed there are two rainy seasons here in northern Tanzania. There's a short rains and a long rains. And the major difference that people have noticed is that the short rains have either become abbreviated, they're starting later or they're cut short, or they are just disappearing altogether. There won't be a short rainy season at all. So that is a really a major impact on people because... The short rainy seasons are what break up the long dry season. And so people's cattle really, by the end of the long dry season, are very weak. So they really rely on those short rains to get them through until the long rains come. So in that part of Africa, cattle are really, really essential to the whole way of life. They're the currency and they're really, really significant in their lives. So it's rather like um, old Ireland, really, if you think about it. Really, they do love their cattle in a way that is probably difficult to understand unless you yourself are a livestock keeper. Yeah, to see one of your cattle die is really one of the worst things that can happen to a person. And when people recall events, for example, the the drought in 2008, 2009, it's very painful for them to talk about losing their cattle in that way. And people will go to great lengths to try to save their cattle. There are many different strategies. They will import food, you know, make these special mixtures of corn husk and molasses to try to sustain them through the drought. And they often talk about treating their cattle like human beings. They have to take care of them like people, like they were sick people. And one of the things they say has changed because of climate change is that they have to take care of their cattle more like people, much more so than they did in the past. You know, the cattle need a lot more care than they did because they're more susceptible to disease because they're weaker, because they don't have as uh, nutritious uh, pasture as they did in the past. They don't have as much water as they did in the past. I know I made the connection between cattle in old Ireland and the Maasai people and their attitude to cattle. But actually, there's a modern connection as well. A third of the greenhouse gases that Ireland produces comes from agriculture. And the fact that we consume and produce so much meat and dairy contributes to that. So on one simplistic level, you could say that the greenhouse gases that our cattle produce have a deleterious effect on their cattle. On another level, you could say that they are wedded to their cattle and it's part of their way of life. But we are also wedded to our cattle, our beef, despite being told that it's causing global warming. Three years ago at the Paris Climate Accord, the former Taoiseach Enda Kenny said that Ireland needed understanding from world leaders, that we had been through a very deep recession and needed to grow our economy before we could properly tackle climate change. This morning, the Minister for Climate Action, Richard Bruton, said that he acknowledges that Ireland is way off track in its climate commitments, but that he has got... In fact, it's hard to think of how we might live nowadays without producing greenhouse gases. After all, the work of the documentary makers and scientists in this programme wouldn't have been possible without the greenhouse gases being produced by air travel. Even in the most remote parts of the Earth, 
there is the sound of machines. This is in the helicopter back in Greenland. Documentary maker Liam O'Brien is recording the ice scientists as they fly around the ice sheet, placing and replacing instruments to monitor the ice melt. When I flew over the ice, I expected it to be beautiful pearly white. It's not, it's a gray, black, dark color. When you're on it, it's much brighter, it's much whiter. But from above, you see what is the dark snow effect. Every piece of snow that falls in the ice cap has little pieces of dirt in it. It might be volcanic ash after a, an eruption, it might be smog, it might be whatever's in the ether. Now, because the melt is happening so fast, if you have, say, 10,000 years of ice condensed into 10 years of melt, all these little tiny dust particles are left, of course, on top of the ice as they melt down. That build-up of dirt is making the ice darker, and because it's making it darker, it can't reflect the sunlight in the same way, and it actually starts to absorb the sunlight, which then, of course, increases its rate of melt. I mean, even in the last few years, there's been algae blooms up on the Greenland ice sheet. Essentially, things growing that have never grown there before, and the net result is they're dark. They make the ice dark. They make the snow dark. When you're in the helicopter, you obviously enough, you have a bird's eye view, but you see what the sun sees. And if I'm the sun, I'm looking down at this ice cap, and I see it's dark, it's greyish, it's blackish, and it absorbs the heat. And because it absorbs heat, it melts more. At one point, they land up on a mountainside, looking down on a glacier where it meets the ocean. Yeah, we just landed at this time-lapse camera site. Uh, we just recovered uh, the third year of hourly photos, so I'm in a really good mood. So there we were standing up on a mountain, looking down at this glacier, and we hear this sound. This is an iceberg breaking off a glacier. just saw, you know, kind of apartment block size iceberg break in, fall into the fjord. So very simply put, there's a sheet of ice over Greenland at the edges. That ice is being pushed out into the sea. When it gets to that point, you have a big wall of ice, could be a couple of hundred metres high. And as it's melting, it cracks and it breaks away and it breaks away in big chunks and these chunks are icebergs. And so you had this never-ending echo of ice cracking, of ice melting, of an iceberg falling down into the fjord. An iceberg calves from a glacier, that's the terminology. Literally like a building just falling down and it falls into the sea and it disappears. That's the bit I wasn't prepared for. It completely disappears, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and it bobs back up to the surface in this kind of an action that looks like the sea is now giving birth to this iceberg. 
While all this is fascinating, Liam does have a persistent query. The ice cap in Greenland is 2,000 miles away. For anyone here listening in Ireland, the question is, why should we care? Uh, I would say that there's compelling evidence that melting from Greenland is flooding the North Atlantic with fresh water. Um, this is Jason Box. Producing a cold pool in the North Atlantic that is strengthening storms. And some of those storms are hitting northwestern Europe, producing floods. That pool is sitting just south of Iceland. Melting from Greenland will produce bigger flooding events for places like Ireland, Scotland, the UK, uh, for the foreseeable future. The second impact of global warming on Ireland, coming from the warming north, is high-speed, high-altitude winds. That's this, the river of fast air. These are known as the polar vortex. 10 kilometres up there, you have these extremely high winds. Because they have traditionally moved fast, they've kept the weather system circulating so that any extreme weather events, like heat waves and storms, don't linger. The Arctic is warming at about twice the rate that it is to the south. These winds have traditionally been fast because of the difference between the cold Arctic and the hot equator. With global warming, though, the Arctic is not so cold and the difference is not so great, so the winds have slowed. It has been described as a, as a drunken pattern, a lazy pattern, and so it starts meandering more. And so if it gets stuck, and this is happening more often, you can just get stuck there and then you just have warm air, warm air, warm air, day after day, that's a heat wave. Or cold air from the north, day after day, but it's probably more interesting when you consider flooding events. If the, if the wave gets stuck in such a pattern, it just keeps delivering storms. Issued a status orange wind warning for the counties from Clare to Donegal and across to Louth, valid from now until midday tomorrow. Dylan is developing at the moment out to the west of us there. It's going to be small, fast, and it's going to pack quite a punch. We've issued an orange level warning, so we're expecting winds to gust up to But while these extreme weather events are disruptive and damaging, where they really have an impact is when they're combined with local human activity. Changes and you can see that here now. We're up, we've just come off Spur Road and we're headed for Regent. Um, we're on a Documentary maker Tim Desmond came across an extreme example of this in Sierra Leone in West Africa. So we were driving out of the capital of Sierra Leone, Freetown. It's a city of about a million people, not unlike Dublin, and it's very hilly as you kind of rise up out of the city. And I was travelling out of Freetown with Paul Glynn. He's a wildlife photographer from Dublin. It's called the developing world for a reason. It's developing, it's changing all the time. He's been to Sierra Leone many times, so he could see the difference. Uh, a, a break of a couple of years, you will see absolutely massive changes, and you can see that here now. And the hills around the city used to be covered in forest and that had the effect of controlling the amount of water that rushed down the hills into the city. We're on a road that's unpaved but it is uh, under construction, it's, it's being paved right beside us. It's a kind of a prestigious part of the city, outside the city on the hills, like Beverly Hills or Killiney Hill or, or wherever. It's always nice to have a good view and the views are spectacular there. So there's a tendency for slightly unregulated development to happen on the hillsides, they take out the trees, 
They do a lot of paving, a lot of concrete goes in, so the natural soakage on the hillside is eliminated. Trees are a vital part of the water cycle. They retain water, they return it back to the atmosphere so it can fall as rain again. If you cut the trees, the rain runs off the hills, into the sea, often taking part of the hills with it. Deforestation and climate change, if, if these things aren't, if someone doesn't step in and, and deal with these challenges quickly, uh, it will have significant adverse impacts on the people who live in Freetown. One of the towns that we passed on, on our way out of the city, up through the hills, is a town called Regent. And about a year later, during the next season of rains, that very town was the location of one of the biggest mudslides in Sierra Leone's history. Continent of Africa now, where searches are continuing in Sierra Leone this evening after flooding and mudslides left hundreds dead in the capital, Freetown. The death toll is expected to climb as survivors struggle to... They reckon up to 600 people were killed in one mudslide. But Sierra Leone also provides an example of possible solutions to climate change and extreme weather events. We were travelling to meet Bala Amaraskaran. He runs a chimpanzee conservatory outside of Freetown. And one of the things they've done is they've had their area declared a national park. And one of the arguments they used with the government was that if they preserved the forest, they would help to preserve the water supply for Freetown. So it wasn't just about saving chimpanzees. It was about persuading the government that they needed the forest in order to have a regular water supply for a growing city like Freetown. All the water coming to the capital city is from Goma Valley and Congo Dam, where Takugama is the kind of a custodian. We protect this catchment. Now, the Freetown population have quadrupled. There are probably about 1.2 million people here. If these catchments are not protected... There will come a time the capital city has to move because just the water, uh, the shortage, will not allow this capital city to exist. So we need to do something before we lose this. And if you destroy this forest, I mean, you're really waiting for a huge catastrophe when, when you know, July, August, September is heavy rainfalls. And almost every year now we are having boulders moving from hills and coming down and destroying houses. And it's an ongoing thing and uh, we need to do something. Back up on the Greenland ice sheet, ice scientist Jason Box says trees are part of the solution. So what we need to do is just dial down the atmospheric carbon. We need to engage in carbon drawdown. We need to take about 50 parts per million out of the atmosphere of CO2. If we do that, we'll save the ice sheets, and then we can save all those coastal cities. So we got to get cracking in the next, you know, starting now. How? Plant billions of trees. Um, unfortunately, that's not going to get us all the way there, so we got to do some carbon-sucking technology that could be actually plant-based, and then you sequester that carbon, I guess, by this idea of, you know, floating sea tree islands and takes that carbon out of circulation for, you know, a thousand years or more. Jason Box also says there's money to be made from tackling climate change. So here's the good news. 
there's a whole lot of prosperity that can come from making the adjustments to our economic systems that are needed to tackle climate change. The growth rates in renewable energies are in the double digits. That gives them like two to four year doubling times. So we're going to be surprised at how fast you see electric cars and smart grids being the jobs of the future. And for those wanting things to be just like they were in the good old days, sorry, that's just not an option in this world. And from the Greenland ice sheet, the main memory Liam O'Brien brings back with him is in the form of a sound. The melt is happening much faster than the snow is falling in the winter. What you're listening to here is the sound of climate change. <laughs> 